Hi, my name is Jeff, and I am an alcoholic. Everybody. Because this program has worked in my life where nothing else ever did, I have been kept sober since November the 16th of 79, and I'm very grateful for that. Right before the meeting started, uh, a fellow that I feel privileged enough to sponsor in the program said, do you want me to force laughter while you're talking if you're not getting any? <laughs> and it reminded me of something that uh, Gail W. said at that first Houston Roundup in 82 when uh, she spoke. And she said that before she got up there, she wanted more than anything to be good. And she said, you know, I never heard an AA speaker yet that wanted to be good, that was honest. And all my life, all I ever wanted to do was to be funny. So that was an appropriate remark for uh, Jeff to make to me because I wanted so much to get up here tonight and be funny. And I thought of several things that I have been through, both drinking and sober. So I found it necessary uh, from about 7.45 to 8.30 to go up to my room and be alone, uh, physically anyway, and quiet and turn this whole experience over to my higher power because one of the freedoms that this program has given me is the freedom from the need to be funny. And I share that because it was a big part of my life and it was a big part of my sobriety for many years. And I used to sit in AA meetings and think of funny things to say, all the while missing anything else that was going on. And when I told my story, I had several stock stories that were always guaranteed to get a good laugh. And then I had this last year of sobriety. And there was not a lot of laughter for me in this last year of sobriety. And I found it uh, important for me on my birthday night at Lambda in Dallas uh, last year to be honest about things that I had gone through. And a lot of people were surprised. Some people who need perhaps a little more work were uh, critical that on something as joyous and up and so important for the people who are brand new to AA, that at eight years of sobriety, I shared some pain from the podium. And one of my best friends said, Christ, I thought we were going to have to play a funeral dirge while you were at the microphone. And when Henry called me and asked me to speak at this roundup, I knew that there were reasons for that. And there are a lot of people in this room who have known me for a number of years sober. And it has been um, a difficult year. But the irony is, is that I didn't know when Henry asked me to speak what the theme of this roundup was going to be. And when I found out, it was another experience in what a wonderful woman named Lee V calls God winking at us. And it was God winking at me because I don't want to get up here and talk about all the pain that I've been through in the last year and not tell you that through that pain, there has been an incredible amount of freedom because I'm coming to understand that my pain is directly related to my unwillingness to accept life on life's terms and to trust that there is a higher power guiding my life and guiding other people's lives and that when I am free from my ideas about how things ought to be, I am a much happier person. I w was told for a number of years that 
I hate this expression, by the way. Pain is the touchstone to spiritual growth, my first sponsor used to tell me. And things like when you get sick and tired of being sick and tired, then you will grow. And one of the freedoms that this last year and a half particularly have brought me is a new understanding of the promise that we will know a new happiness and a new freedom. And I no longer believe it's necessary to experience deep emotional pain to grow spiritually. What is necessary for me is to surrender the moment the pain starts. And I am not someone who has surrendered easily in sobriety. But to not get ahead of myself, I do want to, before I forget, thank Henry and the committee for the privilege of letting me speak at this roundup. I do consider a lot of the service work, I suppose I should be very spiritual and say I consider all service work a privilege, and on a certain level it is, but I do consider it a privilege to speak as well as I consider it a privilege to sponsor someone in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I truly do believe that it is the relationship of sponsorship that has been a key part, both as a sponsor and being sponsored. And you will probably hear me harp on that a lot because it has been so critical. I do not understand nor relate to people in Alcoholics Anonymous who do not have sponsors or who don't sponsor people after they've been sober long enough to have done that because it has been absolutely key and a, a foundation uh, besides the 12 steps to my staying sober. So I thank you for this privilege. I uh, am grateful to say, too, that because of this program, I've kind of been reinstated in my family to a title I held for many years. And I was born in Dallas in uh, two days before Christmas in 1948. And being from the family that I was from, that makes me 39. I see some people going like this. Uh, <clears throat> in fact, I'm coming up on my 40th birthday, and I want you to know it doesn't bother me. Bother me. Bother me. But anyway, uh, I'm grateful on one level that uh, a day at a time I have the opportunity to celebrate it sober. And that is not uh, a privilege that some people in my life have had or, or seem to be about to have. But anyway, when I, uh, I was born on December 23rd and my family found it necessary to bring me home from the hospital and put me in a big Christmas package with a big red ribbon and a little card that said, this is the best Christmas present God ever gave this family and I'm here to tell you they came to regret that later. <laughs> But thanks to the program, uh, my mother told me last Christmas, I joked with her about that, and, and she looked at me and she said, honey, you are. And for her to be able to say that after all those years has been an incredible healing process in my family and in my life, for which I'm very grateful. I don't want to take a great deal of time to tell you uh, about my drinking career. You've had it. I hope, as I hope, that a day at a time, with the help of this program, none of us resumes that career. Suffice it to say that I drank a whole lot, I fell down a whole lot, 
I was kind of like um, one of those old lines out of scripture that says, that which I would not do, I do, and that which I would do, I do not. And that was pretty much the way it was when I drank, and it was pretty much the way it was for a while after I got sober. But through the healing and forgiving process of the steps and the, and the people in AA, I have less and less done that. I didn't realize till I got to AA that I was a terrified little boy. I was the baby in the family. I got everything that I wanted. I was my parents divorced when I was five months old, and my grandmother helped raise me. And I learned at a very early age how to manipulate the two most important people in my life, my mother and my grandmother. And fortunately or unfortunately, it really doesn't matter today. Uh, they spent a great deal of time trying to convince me that the one loved me more than the other one. And I really didn't give a shit which one loved me the most. I just learned how to manipulate them both to get everything that I wanted. And then my hateful mother remarried when I was six years old. And it came to a sudden end for a while. And I mention this because I hated my stepfather passionately. And this, again, has been a gift of Alcoholics Anonymous. When I got here in the fall of 79, I can remember thinking in my first five or six months of sobriety, if this program keeps me sober and ever gets me to the point that I could say I love my father, it truly is a miraculous program. And I guess it truly is because I can say today I love my father. And I hated him for years and years and years. All that I could see in that man was that he was from the wrong side of town, from the wrong kind of background, with the wrong kind of attitudes. And he certainly had a very wrong attitude about me, poor, innocent, loving, lovable Jeff, just didn't think and act the way he thought I did. And I remember how many times he used to tell me that if it, would, if it was going to kill him, he was not going to have me grow up and be a, a snob and arrogant and all the things that I learned to do when I found alcohol and I came out of the closet. But I can love him today for that because he was trying the best way he knew how and seeing, even at six years old, the behavior, the thinking patterns that those years of manipulating my grandmother and my mother were already setting up in my life. And he knew better than they that it was going to cause me a great deal of hardship when I got out there in the world and had to make it on my own. Anyway, I did, uh, as I said, I was born in Dallas, and when I was 13, we were uprooted and moved to Austin, and that was a very upsetting experience for me, and I look back on it uh, sober, and I see why, because first of all, I was separated from my grandmother, and she was the most influential person in my life. I thank God today for her. She was human, but she was the most spiritual human being I have ever known. And then I came to AA, and thank God, God put some people in my life so I could let go of the memory of my grandmother as the only spiritual person walking the face of the earth.
She was a devout Christian scientist, and she taught me about a loving God. And I'm very grateful whether you embrace any form of an organized religion, and today I do not. I follow a particular spiritual path that I find works for me. But it has nothing to do with her being a Christian scientist, I don't suppose, but it has to do with the fact that she showed me unconditional love and she taught me at a very early age about a loving God. And that was very important to me later because my family, when I was about 19 years old, became very caught up in the reborn fundamental Christian movement and having a homosexual son did not exactly fit in with what they were all doing with their lives. And at 19 years old, I began to hear about a different kind of God, a conditional God, a judging God, a condemning God. And I guess I decided somewhere in there that since uh, I was pretty uh, screwed up at that time, I was in college, I was doing lots of drinking. Uh, Drugs were not a big part of my life or my college life back then. That came a little later. But I just, for some reason, decided that God and all that stuff had nothing to do with me, and I didn't want any part of it. And by the time I was 23 or 24, don't ask me how I had managed to graduate from the University of Texas, and worse yet, for the public school kids of the state of Texas, I had managed to land myself a teaching job right here in San Antonio at Randolph Air Force Base, and I taught high school juniors and seniors. And it was kind of a nice thought to realize that I lived in San Antonio for three years during some of the worst of my drinking and drugging, and I never spent the night in this hotel, and that's such a cleansing, pure feeling. Uh, (laughs) Down the street's another story, but anyway... um, so I, I, I decided the third year that I taught school that um, it, it was the strangest year of my life. I, I really do believe that. My family had, uh, you know, intervention is not just something that happens when a family and friends decide you've had too much to drink or drug. They do it in the fundamentalist movement, too. And they did it to me, and I was so overwhelmed, I just went along with it bringing up, of course, our pattern of people-pleasing. And it was easier just to go along with it than to try to resist it, because obviously, spiritually, I was in no place to resist it. And emotionally and mentally, I guess in some sense, I still didn't want to lose my family as much as I disagreed with them and as much as I didn't want what they were offering. I went along with it. And I committed my life to Jesus Christ, and I tell you that from up here in an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting because it's very important for me to share that experience because it taught me, again, about a loving and forgiving God because what I did with that experience caused me such deep-seated guilt and shame that I never thought I would let it go. And it has been through the steps that I've been able to do that. Uh, And my point is not to reflect on that spiritual pathway. It's to tell you I took it and what I did with it and how I felt about it 
as a practicing alcoholic because I was taken on that pathway by people who believed that my sexuality was wrong and was an abomination. And so they wanted me at 25 years old to turn my back on this life. And I lasted three months. I came as close to a nervous breakdown as I ever have until recently. And uh, I'll get to that later. And uh, I made a very profound, direct, personal statement to him. And what I said was, I don't want you in my life anymore. Leave me alone and keep these people out of my life. I don't want it. And that was in 75. And in 75, I, I didn't think it was possible to drink any more than I was already drinking. But I did. And I began to use drugs. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm grateful that I don't know why, because I have friends in the program who are drug addicts whose choice or, or preference was drugs. The only thing that I liked about drugs were, was speed, because if I did speed, I could drink more. And that was always the objective. Uh, when I got into you know, the hallucinogens, it was, it was too strange for me. And I was always afraid I wouldn't get back. And there were several times when maybe I shouldn't have, but I did. Uh, and that's grace. That's grace to me. One other thing that I will tell you very briefly about that had a great deal to do with my guilt and shame, and I mention that because I find today that we don't talk a lot, at least I don't hear a lot in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous about letting go of guilt and shame. And I think that's why we have some wonderful other support groups that are dealing with that more directly. But I carried a great deal of guilt and shame about turning my back on the Lord and about doing what I did, which I thought was terribly humorous. And I had moved back to Austin in 75. Now, don't ask me why. I've turned my back on the Lord and I've turned my back on my, my Baptist family and they all live in Austin. But I leave San Antonio and I move to Austin. Makes sense, doesn't it? And um, I, I just felt like I thought this was a real funny thing to do because everybody in my family was telling me that the Lord was coming again and I just had to give this up so that when he came, I wouldn't be lost forever. And uh, so I went in this uh, all-night um, Episcopal church in Austin and, and I left an empty bottle of Mogan David wine on the altar and a half a loaf of French bread. And... <laughs> I left a little note stuck in the French bread, and it said, I came, no one was here, I left, sorry, Jesus. And I left. And I thought it was very funny at the time. And then when I got sober, I felt terribly guilty about doing that. And... Uh, in fact, it was the hardest part of my, fourth, my first fourth step. When I got to that, that experience, I thought, I can't tell anybody I did that. I mean, that, that's, just, I mean, that's beyond tacky. I mean, that's, 
that's whatever. I, I was going to use the big B word they use on that side of the religious fence called blasphemy, but I had it directed at me so often it's not a fun word in my vocabulary. But anyway, that's the wonderful thing uh, to me about the program of Alcoholics Anonymous is that I struggled with that and I knew I had to include that, not because it was so blasphemous or so terrible, but because I felt so guilty about it and I felt so full of shame for doing anything like that. And when I got to that point, when I was taking my fifth step with my first sponsor, I couldn't read it. I said, Sharon, I can't read this. It, it's horrible. And she just sat and looked at me. And I said, no, really. I, I, you know, she had that look sponsors have that says, I'll sit here silently until the sun comes up if necessary, but you're going to read it. And, you know, it's that, that strange communication that we discover in sobriety and in the fellowship of this program when we just look at one another and nothing needs be said. And I thought, damn, I am going to have to read this. And so I did. And she did the strangest thing. She burst out laughing. <laughs> and I looked at her and I thought, maybe she's lost too. Uh, <laughs> that's where I was, you know, seven months sober and I was still buying that message to a certain degree. And I look back on it now, you know, the wonderful thing about staying sober sometimes is looking back on an experience I've had sober and seeing what it was really all about. Not what I thought it was about at the time, but what it was really all about. And I told her a long time later, I said, you know, Sharon, that was the first time I ever shared a really painful secret with somebody in AA and you laughed. And I looked back on it and I realized that that is so much a part of my healing is the ability to laugh at myself and the ability that we have to laugh at ourselves. When I first got back from the reception tonight, I turned on the TV in my room and they had an article on stress. And these people were making millions of dollars talking about things and it's like a lot of other things. And you watch these programs and you think, my God, the people in AA gave me that for free. They went on for 15 minutes about how these scientists and researchers have discovered how laughter reduces the level of stress. I thought they could have gone to an AA meeting and discovered that. But it's true and, it's, and I, I'm thankful that the program, the people in this program have taught me to laugh at myself because as I said in the beginning of my talk tonight, laughing was very important. Making people laugh was very important, but I can assure you when I drank, I was never the butt of the joke. I never laughed at myself when I was drinking. You or whoever was unfortunate to drift into my eyes view you know, it's, it was incredible to me that after I got sober, I had a friend of mine tell me that when he went to parties and he saw me there, he either made a decision to leave or stay. And if he stayed, it depended upon his ability to stay behind me the entire time so that I never turned around and saw him 
and possibly made him the butt of my jokes that evening. That's how funny I was when I drank. I thought I was hilarious. You hear things from friends who knew you when you were drinking and you think, thanks a lot. But it was that turning, you know, away from the sick, fearful, unforgiven self to this program, which has taught me to forgive myself, to nurture myself and to love myself. And I never thought that was possible. I got so sick of hearing people tell me when I would go through relationship after relationship and I and they would say, well, you know, Jeff, until you learn to love yourself, you just can't love anybody else. And that would make me very angry. And I didn't want to believe it. Today I love myself. I'm still single, but that's okay. In fact, I was telling a friend last night, this is the first time in my life, and I just have to say this because it's on my mind and I don't want to forget to say it. Again, there are some people in this room who have known me a number of years and some people who knew me when I was drinking. And I used to joke that I had been married so many times I had rice marks on my face. And I couldn't imagine, even sober, living life alone because I didn't know that living solitarily doesn't mean living alone. And I'm real grateful that this last two years has been a process of learning the difference between solitude and loneliness. I can't believe I'm going to say this, but I'm saying it for me. I actually realized earlier this year in a dating relationship that not only did I not need a lover, I didn't want one. And that was blinding to me. It was blinding. It was like, I don't want you in my living room morning after morning. You know, it's like, I like my solitude. I like to get up in the morning and have my quiet time and read my books and have my coffee. And I don't like you sitting there smoking a cigarette. I mean, I smoke, but not in the morning. Never did. It's nauseating. I don't understand. It's like, why don't you walk out the door, start the engine, get down and suck the exhaust pipe? It's, you know, it's, it's giving your lungs the same fighting chance. You know, I'm into denial. I wait till the six o'clock meeting at Lambda and I smoke a pack by the end of the night. But I didn't begin my day with a cigarette. So anyway, the games we play. Um, and I have known freedom from tobacco in sobriety, let me assure you. But I continue to relapse, but I say better tobacco than alcohol, and that's probably the worst of the denial and rationalization. But anyway, I, um, I am so grateful for this new freedom. God, I cannot tell you all how much that is freedom to me. I was absolutely someone all my life who felt incomplete and less than if I didn't have a man at my side. It just, there, it's like the old saying, what's missing from this picture? And I never knew that nothing was missing from that picture. I don't want to harp on it except to say that, that probably next to physical sobriety and a relationship with God that I have today, it's probably the most incredible change in, in my life 
to to have that. And one of the things that I've discovered is what uh, my mother told me this several years ago when she said after a breakup, she said, honey, do your friends refer to you as Lana Turner or Liz Taylor? And it's like, you really want to hear this from your own mother. <laughs> get a dog, honey. Get, a, get an animal. Get a cat. Get a dog. Something that will love you unconditionally. <laughs> ah, and I thought you did, mother. <laughs> anyway... This is an incredible freedom, and you may think this sounds strange. You're looking at someone who has been physically and psychologically allergic to any kind of cat living on the face of this earth. I was raised, the good news is coming, whoever's hissing, we have a, le we have a lesson in patience here from the podium. I hated cats. I was raised in a family that hated cats. We always had dogs man's best friend now I know why cat I mean dogs are very dependent dogs follow you around dogs do as they're told dogs jump when you yell at them dogs get hurt dogs are not very much different from us cats are very different from us <laughs> this is an incredible freedom to me in February of this year a friend of mine, a man that I used to sponsor, asked me if I was interested in acquiring this cat that he and his lover had to get rid of. He had bought the cat for his lover for Christmas, and it did not get along with their, the cat they already had. And I said, Tom, you don't understand. I hate cats. Besides, I'm allergic to them. I am fatally asthmatic within 15 minutes of being anywhere near a cat. What kind of cat is it? It's a Persian. Oh, do they make them with any longer hair than that? You know, he says, well, just let me bring him over and you just see him. It's kind of like what we do when we say to a friend who is kind of open and ready for our program. Just come to a meeting and see what you think about it. That's how we track them. <clears throat> well, that's how he trapped me. He brought this little kitty over. And I'll tell you, when that little golden Persian kitty at about six months old came out of that kitty carrier, I just, I looked at Tom and I said, you SOB. I knew, and I said, I'll try it. That's all I can tell you. I'll try it. This may sound kind of strange to some of you, but part of my spiritual journey in sobriety uh, for a little over a year now has been to embrace, uh, I guess for lack of a better way of describing it, the Unity Church's approach to spirituality. And I didn't, I wasn't going to use the word metaphysics because it's kind of like everything else. It covers everything from A to Z, and mostly what people think about is Shirley MacLaine, and you've lost them. But that's their judgmental problem. But I realized that I had an opportunity with that kitty, and it was not a coincidence. And that's a gift of AA. You know, I've learned to more than I ever have to go with the flow of life, to just go with that ebb and flow and experience life and not try to make life happen. And there was a reason that God was putting that little kitty in my life, and I knew that it was love. And I knew that love was more powerful even then 
than 39 plus years of believing that cats would make me asthmatic. And he stayed with me, and the third night I went to bed, I felt an asthma attack coming on. And I said, God, I absolutely deny this. I absolutely deny this old idea to have any power over me. And this little kitten is a gift of love from you, and I believe your love can heal me. And I went to sleep, and I've not had an asthma attack since. And this is September. And that cat has become such a dear and loving part of my life. And it's not an unconditional love, I might add. <laughs> it's a very conditional love. <laughs> I was uh, I was in New York two weeks ago on business and and I was gone for a week and I made a tragic I'm new at this okay if you're a cat lover and you've had them all your life I'm new okay I mean I'm like a newcomer and you know they don't have Kitties Anonymous that I can go to uh, to learn about raising I've read books I'm a good recovering alcoholic I got all the books on raising cats and raising Persians I've read them all. Kind of like what I did with the big book the first year, <laughs> and go about living it a day at a time. But his name is Nick, by the way, and he was a very unamused cat when I got back from New York, and he let me know it. Um, they have ways, you know. They they miss their litter box by by wounds, not feet. Wounds. It's like. I know what you're doing, and you're not getting away with this, you know. So it's kind of nice to try to parent a cat. They're very amused by it,、uh, but it's been a wonderful gift, and it's been a wonderful healing experience. I know this may sound strange to you too, but one night I felt such love for him, and I was really emotional about it. And I wanted him more than anything, just to jump up in my lap and let me stroke him and pet him and scratch him. And I was just looking at him, and he's sitting on the floor looking up at me, and he's just the most. I have pictures, but not with me.、Uh, up in the room, however, I do, and、uh, it's pathetic. It's just pathetic.、Um, and I'm looking at him, and I said, "Baby, you are just the most beautiful gift of love God has ever put in my life. Why don't you come up here in Dad's lap and let me scratch you?" And he looked at me, and he meowed, and he got up and walked out of the room. <laughs> and I said, God, if you don't do things in this little kitty brain, I'm going to get asthmatic and get rid of him. I mean, you know, you want to talk about getting in touch with your rejection issues or your abandonment issues? I mean, it's like this cat doesn't know that I have to open the can of cat food. <laughs> I clean the litter box, okay? Of course, he doesn't care because if I don't feed him, he eats the plant, and if I don't clean the litter box, he craps on the carpet. So he's totally in control. But, <laughs> and I guess that's what's making it work. See, with all those lovers, I had to be in control, and I never was, but thought I was. I'm real clear. I'm not in control with Nick. He's definitely in control. But it was the strangest thing that night when he got up and walked out of the room, and the thought went right through me like that: Nick is teaching you unconditional love. I thought I was going to get it. I'm learning to give it, and that is not something I did with a lover or with family or friends. And you just have to. And may sound strange. I don't question it. Whatever God wants to send my way, that's going to. 
teach me unconditional love, even if it's a kitten, I'm, I'm willing today to, to learn that lesson. And it was not one that I knew anything about. I do want to tell you that I used to drink a whole lot and that by the fall of 79 I was ready for this program, I thought. Um, I won't get into a lot of it. It's just the fact that by 79, do you like the smooth transition there in my story? I did. Only alcoholics understand that knee-jerk stuff. But anyway, uh, I don't. I, I, I want to tell you what it was like for me when I got to AA because it's real important for me because sometimes it's easy the longer I stay sober to forget what it was like. And I nearly forgot what it was like this year and I nearly got to go back. But in the fall of 79, um, all that I did was drink and party. And all that I ever wanted to do was go to parties and give parties and have a career that paid me enough money to do those two things. Of course, have the lover. And I had managed to do that and I was making a very good salary and I was in hotel management and my lover and I were going on three years together and we had a very tasteful duplex in Dallas on Bowser. If you've ever, every fag that's ever lived in Dallas manages to either live on Bowser or sleep on Bowser. It's a very gay street. And um, the point in telling you that is, is that it's, it's an important lesson for me to learn that I can't depend on exteriors. I can't depend on how my life looks outside of me. And that's all that was really important. Until I got to AA and got sober, I never looked inside of me and I never wanted to look inside. It was scary. I mean, when you look inside of you and there's nothing there looking back, you say later on looking inside of you. And so externals were very important to me and they continue to be important to me. And all I could see was that I had the lover, we had the beautiful apartment, I had the career, I had family, I had friends. What is wrong with my life? Why am I falling down drunk all the time? Nobody understood it either. You know, everybody would say, why do you get drunk all the time? I mean, you know, you've got a lover, you've got a career, you've got family and friends. And I would say, I like, you know, I like to party. I remember going to th that year. It was like the little seeds that God plants in our consciousness that finally start germinating and take root. And I realized that something that my great aunt had said to me earlier that year, I, I went by... Actually, this was a month before my grandmother died, and that was a real painful situation for me. I, I don't know why God didn't let her live uh, another six months to see me get sober, but he didn't. Sounds kind of weird, but I remember Sharon saying to me one night, my first sponsor, when I, I got real emotional about that. I said, Sharon, why would a loving God have let that poor woman see me fall down drunk all those years and never let her live long enough to know that I got sober? And she looked at me and she said, she knows you got sober. I got goosebumps and dropped the subject. But it was like, ooh, there, here comes these AAs with that spiritual stuff again. You know, I wasn't all that sober and it scared me. And, and it doesn't today. Spirituality doesn't scare me today, but it sure scared me when I was new. But what my great aunt said to me was a seed that was planted that took 
route later. Because as I said, all I did was want a drink and I wanted to party. And I stopped by my grandmother's house one night. She and my great aunt lived together and they were sisters and they were both witted. And I went in the kitchen to get myself something to drink and they had voted my great aunt most disciplined woman in the room at that time, I guess. But she was the one they decided should confront me in the kitchen. And she said, Jeff, dear, um, your grandmother and I were just talking about this, and we, we wondered if, if you think you drink too much. Now, how many times did we all hear that? And I thought, see, any time anybody ever said that to me, I would lash back viciously. And they used to say that I could cut paper at 500 yards with my tongue when I was drinking. Well, this was a woman along with my grandmother I would never have lashed out at. And I just looked at her and I said, no, I never have. And, and I was well on my way already that evening. I stopped by after happy hour at the bar. What could be, you know, more usual than that? And she said, dear, every time you come by here, you're drunk and we think you have a drinking problem. And I said, Aunt Betty, I just like to party. And she said, honey, even the band takes a break. And that made me so angry. <laughs> you see, that little seed was planted, you know. Um, I, you know, all those little things add up. I did not wake up one day, look in the mirror and say, I'm an alcoholic and I need to go to AA. What I did do was get very, very drunk and humiliate myself and a great deal of people at a party. And the next day, my best friend who threw that party said, you will apologize to everyone who is at this party or our friendship is over. And at that time, it was the longest friendship I had. It was 12 years old at that time. It was the longest relationship of any closeness that I had, and I was scared to death of losing Jerry's friendship. And, of course, I had all the usual denial. We, Girl, you drink as much as I do. And he said, well, maybe I do, but I don't insult people like you do, and you're an asshole when you get drunk. And you're going to do this, or I'm not going to be your friend anymore. And I toyed with that, and he brought the phone over, and he set it down, and he started making me dial the phone and call these people. It was a pre-AA experience in making amends and in taking responsibility for my behavior. Obviously, I didn't know all that. Within two weeks, my best friend, my lover, and my boss had all confronted me about my drinking, and all of them had said, if I don't do something about it, that... It was over. The relationship, the job, the friendship. Coincidentally, I had a friend in my life who had been going to AA for over a year. I used to make great fun of this man at parties. Royce would arrive and I would say, there's my friend Royce. He's an alcoholic. He goes to AA meetings. Can you believe it? While I'm, you know, wheeling and staggering around the room. And I tell you that because in Royce... I was shown the love that is capable. It is not guaranteed. 
I know some real mean, hateful old people in AA, and I just have to say that. Judgmental, self-righteous, and I can say that because I've been there. I've been hateful, I've been self-righteous, I've been judgmental, and it's something that I'm willing and have seen more freedom from this last year. The greatest compliment anyone paid me was my former sponsoree and my roommate who chose to leave AA this past year and to make uh, ACOA and CODA his primary programs of recovery. And we sat and had dinner a few weeks ago, and he looked at me, and his mouth was hanging open, and he said, I have never known you to be so free of judgment. You are so accepting of what I have done. And that was one of the nicest compliments, because I can tell you two years ago, I wouldn't have felt that way, and he wouldn't have picked up on that. It's another new freedom. Whatever approach anybody takes for me today that is based in those steps. We didn't invent them, folks. Bill Wilson was a wonderful man and was used in wonderful ways, but the principles of the 12 steps don't just belong to Alcoholics Anonymous. And that was a painful lie to let go of in sobriety. I want to believe that if I did it here, by God, everybody has to do it here. And that is the most classic example to me of limited thinking that we can get into. And enough of my soapbox about all of that. Anyway, the reason I was telling you about Royce is that his anonymity constantly being broken by a, a wet drunk. And when I finally reached out and said, Royce, I need to talk, he was willing to talk with me. I wonder if I would have been that loving had I been through that experience, and he was in his first year of sobriety. I'll tell you something else he did, and I've had people ask me not to share this from the microphone, which of course sets me up to always try to remember to share it from the microphone. <laughs> but anyway, we went to lunch, and it was Monday after OU weekend in Dallas, and if you know what that's like, I was not a pretty picture. And we sat down, and I was like this from the booze and the waiter asked if either one of us wanted anything from the bar and I looked at Royce and I said would you mind if I ordered a glass of wine and he said no I don't mind the man probably saved my life God works in a divinely ordered pattern if that man had said to me when you're ready to put the plug in the jug you know where I am I would probably, I don't know, it doesn't matter, it's all theoretical. I'm just grateful that he loved me unconditionally. I get so damn mad when I hear that kind of stuff in AA. The one thing that kept me coming back to AA was that this was one place where people reached me at the point of my need, not from the point of their growth. And he did not say to me, no, you can't order a drink. Now, I doubt if he would have sat there while I drank glass after glass after glass, but I didn't. And he was willing to wait and see if I did, because I needed that glass of wine to cope with that lunch. I am not yet sober, and I know nothing about the disease of alcoholism. And I drank that glass of wine, and I told him my sad tale of 
how my boss and my lover and my best friend didn't understand me and they were after me about my drinking and that they were threatening to end those relationships and I guess maybe I did have just a little bit of a drinking problem and and I knew he had and he had done something about it and maybe he had something he could tell me that would help me. What he said to me has been on a human level the most important thing anybody ever said to me in AA. And he listened to all of my sad story and he said, Jeff, you're really very lonely, aren't you? That doesn't sound terribly original to any of you. We've learned that this is a disease of loneliness. But I was on the drinking side of my disease. And all I can tell you is that when that man said that, I watched 16 years of barriers built with that booze come they didn't tumble down they just disappeared I felt like I'd been shot right in the heart and I spontaneously started crying and that was not something I did nobody made me cry and I had stuffed a lot of family stuff for a lot of years and nobody made me cry and it just spontaneously came he did not talk to me about God and that was wise for this alcoholic I had run the gamut from Christian science to fundamental baptism, the Baptist church, and I was religiously and spiritually schizophrenic at that point. <laughs> he didn't talk to me about alcoholism. He talked to me about my loneliness, and he said, Jeff, I've known you for over a year, and you want so desperately for people to like you, and you try so hard to get people to like you. And you end up feeling so empty and lonely. And I can say that because I know what it's like to live like that. And he said, all I can tell you is if you'll come to a meeting with me, you're going to meet a group of people who by and large will accept you just the way you are. And you don't have to do anything to impress them. And he told me a lot of things about the fellowship of AA. That's what he talked to me about. Not God, not the disease the fellowship, the kind of people that I was going to find in AA. And to tell you the truth, it sounded kind of Hare Krishna to me, but I was very sick and, and desperate and I wanted some help. And I, uh, and I went. And I'll tell you what I saw in that first meeting that it took me five years of sobriety to realize was what I saw in that first meeting. When I left, there was something different. I didn't know what it was. I just knew I wanted to go back. And, I, and, and that was in early October. And I stayed sober three weeks, and I got drunk. And I stayed drunk for four days, three of which were in a blackout. And I had never had a blackout that lasted more than an evening. So I got to learn at a very early age that this disease is progressive. And when I go back to alcohol, it is worse than it was when I, before I got sober. But I went back November the 16th of 79. And the reason that I give credit to, to this same man again or for God using him, and that when I told him that I had had this slip, he asked me if I had my desire chip. And I said, yes, I do. And I gave it to him. 
And he got up off my sofa and he walked across the room and he threw that desire chip in the trash can and he walked over to the door of my apartment and he said, that's how much sobriety means to you. Call us when you want to get sober. You know where we are. And he left. I am so grateful that man tough loved me like that. I am so grateful that that man didn't pat me on the head and say, it's okay, baby. You know, we sometimes we drink and then, you know, you can just come back. I don't know if I'd be here tonight. I don't know if I'd be sober. That man scared me sober. He walked out the door of my apartment and I thought to myself, Jesus Christ, you've just been 88 or 86 by AA. It was like, how much lower can you, I mean, you get 86 in a bar, you could care less. You know, it's like, I've been thrown out of worse places than this. But here was AA, and it scared me sober. I thought, you know, i got to take this seriously. I can't play around with this. So I took it seriously. Just want to share a couple of things that were real turning points for me in my sobriety, especially that first year. The irony is that man who took me to my first meeting, who said that to me after my one slip to date a day at a time, got drunk three weeks later. So we never know who's going to carry the message. I'm grateful today that he is sober again and has been for a couple of years. But that was a real blow to me because I really had put that man on a pedestal and made him my first sponsor. So lesson number one for me was don't put your sponsor on a pedestal or anybody in AA because you will surely be disappointed. And uh, the second thing was uh, my... Uh, first long-term sponsor, Sharon M., who sponsored me my first year and a half, asked me when I was several months sober, <laughs> having one of those wonderful after-meeting dinners with your sponsor and out of the blue, she says, and Jeff, where are you with God? And I was like, where am I with God? I'm three months sober. I mean, I'm like nowhere with God. And um, she said, well, baby, you better figure it out, and you better figure it out in a hurry, because if you have any intention or hope of staying sober, you cannot do it without a power greater than yourself, and that's what we offer you here, and don't make any mistake about it. And don't listen to any of these bullshit artists around here that can tell you you can stay sober without a higher power. I'm not going to tell you what it is, but you got to have a higher power. That's what we offer here. Whether you want to call it God or anything else, that's your business, but you better find a power greater than yourself, or you're not going to stay sober. And I'm real glad she said that to me, because I thought I had a power greater than myself, and it was called all this stuff inside here. I thought myself was what you saw. What I had hidden in here was that power that was greater than me. And that thing that was in here was sicker than what you were looking at. So it's a real good thing I didn't depend on this hidden self to be my higher power. That was a very big turning point in, in being told, bottom line, go look for it, go seek it, it'll come to you. And I really began to take step two and step three in earnest. When I was seven and a half months sober, the lover who said, if you don't do something about your drinking, seven and a half months before said, see you around. The boss who said, if you don't do something about your drinking or you're fired, said, you're fired. I was seven and a half months sober, and in three days, my boss fired me and my lover left, and I was faced with something I'd never been in my whole life. I was 31 years old, and I was single, and I was sober, and I was unemployed. And I'm here to tell you, it's the most terrifying experience in my life. And when I went to bed that night, 
I had an experience that uh, I didn't share for a long time. I've shared it a few times, and it's not so scary to share anymore. But it's been a very, it was an incredible experience in opening me up to the reality of God's presence every moment of my life. And when I went to bed that night, I was absolutely filled with fear. I was so damn scared. I literally, I don't know if you've ever felt this way sober, but I wanted to go to bed and not wake up. And I didn't know what was on the other side of not waking up, but I didn't care. I was willing to take my chances because I knew what was on the other side of waking up, being alone, being unemployed, and being sober. And I didn't think I could cope with it. And when I went to bed that night, this fear just came over me and my mind was racing. And I thought, well, okay, I'll pray about it. I wasn't in, you know, real big into prayer at this time. It was basically get up in the morning, God, please help me not take a drink today. If you care, I mean, talk about conditional prayer. At night it was God, don't know if you had anything to do with this, but I didn't take a drink, so if you did, thanks. See you in the morning. And that was, uh, talk about learning about a loving and unconditionally loving God. Anyway, I said, God, please take, please take this pain. I cannot deal with this pain. And, and it was becoming very physical. And it started in my stomach and it started coming this way and it started going down. And it was scaring me to death. And it was still there. So I got out of bed and I got down on my knees. That was another new one for me. Hey, that's all religious stuff. Get out on your knees and pray. I don't need to do that. But I was, hey, this is an emergency, okay? So I got down on my knees and I said, God, please take this pain from me. I can't handle it. And I got in bed and it was still there. And I thought, well, maybe he's not listening. So I got back out of bed again. I got down on my knees again and I just crumbled up in a ball on my bedroom floor and I started crying. And it was the first time I remember sober praying the alcoholic prayer, God, please help me that came out through my crying. And it was the first time sober I heard God's voice. A lot of people don't believe that. A lot of people smirk, as the big book says. They think it's too religious sounding. I don't know. I know I heard it. And I share it because it's important for me to remember it. There are too many skeptics in Alcoholics Anonymous who have wanted to convince me that I didn't hear it. And there are too many beautifully spiritually oriented people in AA who have told me don't you ever believe that for a minute you know what you heard and all I heard was a voice say ask me to take your fear see I was asking the symptom be removed not the problem I didn't know that at the time it scared the bejesus out of me I'll tell you that I didn't want to open my eyes I was afraid if I did I was you know maybe I was going to see the Lord and I wasn't quite ready you know <laughs> He might remember that incident in that church with that half loaf of bread. <laughs> he might even be standing there holding them going, uh-huh. <laughs> Wait until you got sober. Mm -hmm. But I was terrified to open my eyes, and so I just kind of got up with my eyes closed, and I pulled myself up on the edge of that bed, and I said, God, please take my fear. And I got in bed, and I went to sleep. And I don't understand this. I really don't. I wish I could tell you I understood it. All I know is I fell sound to sleep. And I woke up the next morning, and all I felt 
was that it was going to be okay. It wasn't going to be great, and it wasn't going to be fun, but it was going to be okay. And there have been times that being sober is not fun, and it's not great, but it's always been okay, and it's always been preferable to going back. The last thing I want to share with you tonight is what this last year has been about for me. And I started out by telling you that it had been uh, a year, actually a year and a half of going through some very painful experiences. And I don't want to go into all the details of all of that. What I did with that pain is what I want to share with you. It began in June of last year when a very close friend of mine died of AIDS. And he was uh, not a friend in AA, but he was an earth friend and a very God-centered man. And he went in eight days. And it was really overwhelming to me. And it was a, the experience was a big catalyst for me in changing my outlook on life and my relationship with God as I understand God today. It was a catalyst in getting me to take a more truth-centered path of spirituality. I didn't know all that at the time. I knew I was in a lot of pain and a lot of anger. And I would not talk about it at AA because, you see, it's not an appropriate topic in Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm grateful to see that that's changing. But to be alone with that and not feel that it was okay to talk about it at AA made it a terrible experience. And it is not, I am not here to judge that reality in our group in Dallas because it is changing and I am very grateful that we recently voted to have a meeting on Sunday, an AA meeting for PWAs, uh, persons with ARC, and uh, people who have tested positive. But that wasn't true 15 months ago. It was what I did with it. See, it isn't important what other people are saying and doing. It's what I do with it. And what I chose to do was stuff my anger, and it became bitterness. But I never let it out. And then in February, my ex-lover was diagnosed and was admitted to the hospital in Dallas and almost died. And it was, again, so terrifying for me. And, and I just, it was, I remember getting off that elevator the first night I went to see him in the hospital. And talk about selfish. Here, the, you know, the poor guy is lying in bed. He weighs 105 pounds. He's got tubes in every arm and up his nose and oxygen mask. And I walked down that hall and I went, there was a little nurse's station there. And I went in there and I sat down. And this is... We've all been through this. I know that. It's not like I felt special. It was just like, just this once, please, God, please don't let Gary die. Please, I just, selfish, sorry, can't handle it. And I went in there, and it was like, you know, when you just turn it over, whatever happens, when I just surrender completely, it's just better 
it's just better. And I surrender. It was like, all right, God damn it, I'm tired of praying for my friends who are sick and seeing some of them die. I'm just tired of it. What? You know, it's like, thy will be done. you got to be beaten down. And it's not because God beats me down. It's because my self-will is still at play there. And God damn it, I don't want any more of them to die. But that's still my self-will. And I went in there and I walked over to his bed and he looked up. And the look on his face was probably, it just brought back, you know, those three years we were together and it was like, please help me. And he looked up at me and he said, Jeff, I'm going to die. I don't know where this came from. I am not taking credit for this, trust me. I, I'm so grateful that I feel that it was being an instrument for God's will. And I got just a little bit angry, and I got right down in his face, and I said, Baby, we're all dying, but this ain't it for you. You're coming out of this hospital, but you got to make a decision. You make a decision whether you want to live or you want to die. If you want to die, adios. If you want to live, I'll do everything I can to help you do that. I am so grateful he chose to live. He spoke at our workshop in Dallas, Memorial Day weekend at the AIDS workshop. And he was, you had to know him to know the growth. This was a man, an alcoholic, terrified of people, afraid to even open his mouth, even sober. And he got up in front of 150 plus people and he was an absolutely mag magnificent example of dignity and grace. And to stand up there and say, my name is Gary and I'm an alcoholic and I have AIDS. And he said it without a trace of embarrassment or remorse. And I want to tell you, for, there are some of you here that were in that workshop, that he's chosen to live. He's chosen to avail himself, not only of this program, but everything that is out there available to him of a spiritual nature geared towards persons with AIDS. And he called me three weeks ago and he said, Jeff... You're the first person I want to tell this to in Dallas. And he had just gotten home from his doctor. And they had run all the latest tests. And he said, I have good news for you. And I said, what is it? And he said, I'm in complete remission. And I said, honey, you have got a story to tell. And you have got to let people know this. I, I know I've strayed completely except it's talking about living in the now and, and living in the mainstream of life. And that's been a wonderful blessing for all of us and, and, and for me. In the midst of all this, before I knew all this, when I still thought he was very sick, I was also chairing the Big D Roundup that was Memorial Day weekend. And when the Roundup was over, I don't know why I did this. I was involved in a business opportunity that was a radical change in my life. And what I've learned from the experience is that halt is as important at eight and a half years sober as it is at eight hours sober. And I was working 75, 80 hours a week, seven days a week, because I had my job and I was going to this other business that I was going to buy. See, I was going to own my own business. And a lot of people in Dallas thought it was very funny because it, uh, it was the gay gym in Dallas. They're like, you're going to own a gym? Huh. Thank you. But I stopped going to meetings. I was so tired all the time that it was a minimum to turn it over to God in the morning and in the evening. 
And I got to the point on the night of July the 8th that I decided to drink again. I got home about midnight that night and I sat down in this chair in my living room and I started shaking all over and I didn't realize that I hadn't eaten all day, that I was not eating properly, had not eaten properly since sometime in May, this was July the 8th. I was not, I had not been to an AA meeting in over six weeks. I don't count the roundup. I had to be there. Well, I didn't have to be, but would have been terribly embarrassing if the chairperson hadn't shown up. But anyway, I'm talking about a program, a daily program of maintenance. All of it went out the window. And I, those of you in this room who are Al-Anon will appreciate my sharing this. It was midnight and I was trembling. And I thought, my God, I'm having a nervous breakdown. My mind was racing and I couldn't stop it. I couldn't focus on anything. I tried to pick up a magazine and it was a blur. And I thought, this is what happens when people have a nervous breakdown. And then the insidiousness of this disease came back and the thought went through my mind, which is worse, a slip or a nervous breakdown. And I'll tell you, a slip sounded a whole lot better to me than a nervous breakdown. I don't know why. I, I call it grace that I picked up the phone and I called a friend in Al-Anon. I don't know why I did. I guess I thought if I called somebody in AA that you'd probably have one of those snappy AA retorts that I'm guilty of using on occasion. You want a drink? Go drink. And, um, sorry, we do it to each other, at least, you know, I know I can. And I'm real grateful. See, a lot of times Al-Anons learn how to deal with us better than we learn how to deal with each other. I know we don't like hearing that, but they've got to, you know, I mean, they keep picking us or they keep living with us or whatever. He didn't say anything terribly profound or spiritually uplifting or awakening. All he said to me was, Jeff, you've lost your perspective. You don't really want to drink. And you're really not having a nervous breakdown. I don't know why. I guess coming from somebody in Al-Anon, an old friend, I don't know. I realized I lost my perspective. And I didn't drink. And it was very tough to go share that at, at Lambda in Dallas. But I knew that I had to. Because what I heard come out of my mouth that had never crossed my mind is that I intend to make July the 8th of 1988 the second most important date in my life other than my sobriety date because it almost became my new sobriety date. And somebody came up to me a few weeks ago and said, please don't share that at the San Antonio Roundup. I mean, what an awful example of Dallas sobriety if you get up there. <laughs> What can I say? I just looked at him and said, keep coming back. <laughs> when words fail you in sobriety, that one always gets them because there's nothing they can say. And I want you to know when I celebrated eight years last November, I never knew I was going to go through this. You know, it's humbling to share it. It's important to share it. I've heard people talk about drinking at five years sober, eight years sober, 15 years sober, and that sick, exclusive, I'm special, I'm different, that will never happen to me. And I want, whether it means anything to any of you, I'm, I don't want to ever forget 
that I wanted to drink, eight, over eight and a half years sober, had nothing to do with the beauty of this program or everything it had done to me. It happened because I'm an alcoholic. And when I don't have a program of daily recovery that doesn't care a damn about how long I've been doing it, I'm going to drink again. And a gift was given to me about two weeks ago in my meditation, and this is what I want to close with. I realized that I had never known or felt or been aware of God's grace in my life, quite like I had from the middle of May until July the 8th. I should have gotten drunk. I don't know why I didn't. And the only explanation I could come up with to myself was to say, Jeff, this must be God's grace. And all those years of there but for the grace of God took on a whole new meaning to me. And I was meditating about two weeks ago and I, and, and I, was, I was very calm and I was very peaceful and centered. And I spoke in the meditation and I said, God, please teach me about grace. And the thought that was given to me was, Grace is the nature of my love for you when you are suffering soul sickness. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. I love you and I love the program.